Welcome to this week's episode, listeners. This is Dawn Sarah. So this interview is one I've been wanting to conduct for a long time, and it's basically me fangirling for an hour because I love Emily Nagoski's work so much, and I was just so delighted to get to talk to this incredible, intelligent, fun, revolutionary human being, and you will hear my excitement and giddiness in the episode. I just want to remind everybody before we jump in, if you're in the DC area, I am teaching uh, five sex workshops at Secret Pleasures Boutique in DC throughout September and early October. So there's a link on the website if you are anywhere in the area. I'm teaching a Blowjobs 101 class for all uh, bodies, including strap-ons. I'm teaching an anal pleasure class. Um, that's like anal sex 101 and anal play. I'm doing one called thriving together, which is all about creating and sustaining a really fun, connected relationship over the long term, based on all the Gottman research. And I'm also teaching two uh, from Curious to Kinky workshops, one that's in mid-September and one that'll be in mid-October. So make sure you uh, check those out and get enrolled. The first from Curious to Kinky is already sold out. The Blowjob Workshop's about halfway sold out as of this episode going live. So make sure you go check that out. And also follow Sex Gets Real on Twitter because I'm tweeting as more classes come up in workshops. So let's get started. Also, one other note about this episode, Emily and I had done our entire interview and we were just about to go into the wrap up where she shares all of her links and her power went out. So at the very end of the episode, the interview ends a little abruptly and I'm going to come back with all of Emily's information. So uh, let's dive in and have fun. Hey everyone, it's Dawn Sarah with Sex Gets Real, and it's taking everything in me not to freak out right now, because on the line with me is someone that you hear me talk about probably almost every episode of the show, and in almost every blog post that I do with your questions. So I want to welcome Emily Nagoski to the show. Hello, Emily. Hello! Hi! Oh my gosh, I'm so excited that you're here. I literally, like, my answer to probably 70% of the questions I get is, go read Come As You Are, or to watch your TED Talk. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yes! Yeah, so for those of you who don't know who Emily is, which you should if you listen to this show with any kind of regularity, uh, Emily Nagoski is a PhD sex educator with 20 years of training and experience. Her mission in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies, which I love. And one of the things that I want to start with is you recently said pleasure is central to my feminism and joy is an act of political rebellion. Yeah. And I love that. And I would love to just hear a little bit more about what that means for you and, and what we can learn from that. Yeah. So my personal feminism must come from the place that I come from, which is uh, East coast United States born in the late seventies white girl. Um, And in that sort of lockjaw, puritanical culture, 
pleasure is not granted to anyone without feelings of shame and guilt and selfishness. Um, and so if we want to liberate ourselves from the patriarchy, basically, I think an essential step in that is to acknowledge that the pleasure of which our bodies are capable is our birthright, as the Good Vibrations motto would have it. And the more we say, fuck you and your guilt and shame, and the claim that I am selfish because I enjoy living inside my body... I get to feel this way. It is like your body is the one and only thing you have on the day you're born that you also have on the day you die mm. for most of us. And so you automatically, it comes with being born. You have permission to feel the sensations of your skin. And pleasure, as I talk about in the book, I mean, it's one of the main messages of the book is that the experience of pleasure depends on the context in which you're experiencing it. So tickling is the standard go-to example where uh, if you're in a fun, flirty, sexy state of mind and your certain special someone tickles you, that could potentially be fun. But if the same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you're mad at them, when they're being annoying, like you want to punch them in the face, <laughs> right? So when I say that pleasure is central to my feminism, what I mean is that I have permission to create contexts that allow my brain to interpret the sensations of my body as pleasurable. For most people, that's a context that is safe, low stress, high affection, high trust, and when we're talking about sexual pleasure, explicitly erotic. I am allowed to have those things because I'm a human being and I was born with a body. Done. And so when I talk about pleasure being central to my feminism, I mean that. And joy for me. <laughs> so it took me a long time to figure this out. Uh, I say that I teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that a student raised their hand and said, Emily, can you tell me what you mean by confidence and joy? Could you please define your terms for us? How do we know when we've got confidence and joy? And I, I was like, that. I have no idea. So I walked away for, it took me a couple, I was vacuuming the rug, actually, because um, I have two dogs and two cats. So I was vacuuming the rug um, and thinking about this question. And what I finally figured out was that confidence comes from knowing what is true about your body. Right even when it's not the things that people taught you were going to be true. And joy is loving what's true, even when it's not the things people taught you were supposed to be true about your body. And to dare to look at what's true inside your body, to confront the reality of the fact that you are a primate and you have sexual sensations and they are fine the way they are, to notice all that stuff and like it, even though every message you've ever received says that if you dare to like who you are, there is something fundamentally and permanently flawed with you, that is radical and transformative. If each one of us noticed all the no messages and your broken messages and one by one just went, I think that's not true. I think actually I'm fine. I think you're lying to me and I'm allowed to like who I am. The entire world would change. It is really difficult and we have to keep doing it every day because every day we're exposed to more cultural messages that tell us we are not allowed to like ourselves. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a gradual revolution. Yes. I'm so glad you said that word gradual. Yeah. 
I feel like that's one way we beat ourselves up, especially when it comes to like body acceptance and and being radically, you know, in love with ourselves as we. Right. S- Darn we it! S- I had a self-critical thought. Stop yes. doing that. Stupid. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or like you feel good for a couple of weeks, and then you have a couple of weeks where you feel terrible, and you feel like you've failed in some way. Right. So yeah, I love that the gradual gives you permission to take yeah. it one day at a time, one step it's- at a time. <laughs> Just is very much about like, wow, look how hard this is. Mm-hmm. I totally 100% believe this. And here I am still struggling with this. This must this is a really hard thing. It's not that I'm doing it wrong, or I'm not strong enough. It's that this is really hard. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And you know, something that you said, too, when you were talking about pleasure, is how we, we get to create the context Mm-hmm. in order to experience pleasure. And, and I know that it's so much of your book is, is about context and responsiveness, but, um, you know, one of the myths that I'm constantly running up against as a sex educator, and I know you're very familiar with this is this cultural expectation that context just happens uh-huh. instead of us <laughs> actually like consciously so- choosing it. <laughs> The thing is, context does just happen. Mm -hmm. But just because it's the context that happens doesn't mean it's the context that works for us. Yes. Yes. So, yes, context does just happen. And if there are things about the context that aren't working for you, there are probably some things you can change to make it more like the context that does work for you. Yes, exactly. I love that. Being able to choose the things that you want to change. And also, um, one of the things that I just took away so much from come as you are was this permission to get to explore lots of different versions of context in order to start figuring out the nuance that works for me in various circumstances and various emotions and various settings and kind of that explorer discovery mindset of there's not Mm -hmm. just one context that works or doesn't work for you. There's like this endless spectrum and you get to play in it to kind of feel what's working for you in that moment. Yeah, I love that you use the word play. Ah, thank you. (laughs) I think that's so important and we forget it all the time. Because it's, I mean, so much of women's exploration of sexuality tends to be driven by fear and shame that they're doing it wrong rather than by curiosity and interest and play of what are all the different kinds of things that I can experience, that there isn't a way to do it wrong. There's just what are the different things that I can experience, what feels right for me today, and what what sort of isn't working for me today. And one of the other things that you mentioned is you were talking about joy and loving what's true about your body. I, I attended your talk that you gave at Lotus Blooms in Northern Virginia about mm-hmm. a month and a half ago. And what struck me was over and over and over again, you said all the same parts organized in different That's ways. ways. Yep. Yes. And what, what just really resonated with me about that is regardless of what genitals we're talking about and reproductive systems we're talking about, you kept bringing it back to this central idea of all the same parts organized in different ways and how that gives so much permission to like intersex bodies and trans bodies and bodies that maybe don't look like the bodies we see in porn. And I, I absolutely love that just those words seem to create space to invite people to start experiencing their joy. Because it, the way I came up with that phrase, it was really in response to blog readers who were feeling um, 
challenged about the language I was using about bodies. And my beginning with sexuality is the fact of humans as primates, as mammals, as these like meat monkeys, right? <laughs> um, and that feels that's that's intellectually connected with uh, a protest to sexuality rooted in biological essentialism. So I needed language that would communicate to people, yes, I'm talking about your biology, about your organism, and I don't mean in any way to imply Freud's bullshit anatomy is destiny. Anatomy is not in any way destiny, except insofar as when you're born with a particular anatomy, the culture imposes a destiny or an expected destiny onto you. And you begin to learn that from before the day you're born, right? Yeah. So that's the only way. So when I was thinking, like, how can I communicate to people that I mean, look, you have a body and it's awesome and everyone's body is different and that means different things for people. Uh, so it was when I was thinking about that, that I finally got, we're all made of the same parts, just organized in different ways. And it's not just about the shape of our genitals and the shape of the rest of our bodies. It's also about like the sensitivities that we have in the brain mechanisms that govern sexual response. It's in our sensitivities to the cultural messages that we receive. Some people are uh, really impermeable to cultural messages and don't understand why people feel so like controlled by social messages and other people have a very strong urge to comply with social expectations so that they can know they're doing it right they're being good girls they're behaving themselves and how come in behaving themselves it still doesn't feel like they're okay um so everyone is different in their temperament and in their life experience as well as in their body and it just creates this space where nobody gets judged and nobody gets told that they're doing it wrong you just need to find the thing that works for you and also what would it be like if maybe we stopped expressing our opinions about other people's sexuality and bodies what if we just went hey everybody's different you do you oh Yes, the comparison trap seems to cause, well, I, I'll speak for myself, the comparison trap has caused me so much pain at so many points in my life. Yeah, And I know that I hear that a lot from listeners too, of just, my penis doesn't look the way that other people's penises look, or, you know, my breasts are small and my boyfriend watches porn that has big breasts. And it's just mm -hmm. like one right after the other, these worries that what I see or what I experience isn't measuring up. And yeah. now we're pushing our like sexual energy and our experiences outside of ourselves. Right. That's the, that's the joy part. Uh, right. So what's happening with me doesn't match what I'm seeing with other people. No, it doesn't match. And what would it be like if you could really embrace what's you? Cause it doesn't have to be the same as that other thing. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. I think one of the things that that's just so powerful in everything that you speak about and write about and just all of your experiences as a sex educator is what comes across to me consistently is just permission, 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 permission in this really like lovely inviting, this is permission for every single person way. You know, it's not like you're giving permission just to certain types of people with certain types of experiences. It's just this all bodies and all experiences and let's like focus focus on our, our internal needs and wants and desires. And I just think that's so beautiful about what you do. The, um, so chapter nine is the chapter I had the hardest time writing. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because it's, you know, I had like 10,000 words in which to express this 
really difficult idea, which I think is the biggest obstacle to people really hearing that message of like, we're all different. You are normal and healthy just the way you are. If you're experiencing unwanted pain, get thee to a doctor. But otherwise, the question is, do I like what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, the barrier to people really receiving the message that they are normal and healthy and they're allowed to be different from everybody else and they're also going to change over their lifetime, I think is um, the amount of grief and rage that is necessarily activated when you realize (laughs) how many decades you've been lied to and how fundamental those lies have been and how you've been treating yourself in this way. You've been trying to follow the rules and trying to be the thing everyone said you were supposed to be, and it was all wrong, and you were actually fine all along. People resist the idea that they could possibly have spent a couple of decades of their life fighting hard toward a goal that was the wrong goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, I I went through a period where I had some really... So I exist in a fat body, and I'm like very vocal about that. And um, I went through a period of time when I was right on the cusp of starting to change how I experienced my body, where I had this like really cruel fat phobia towards other fat bodies and like yeah. judging how they looked. And I, I know now looking back that that was me really starting to resist the fact that all of the ways that I had abused myself and judged myself you know, in order to try and be good enough, we're wrong. And it was me kind of trying to like fight against, well, that can't possibly be wrong. That's been my whole story, my whole life. So I'm going to like hate these other people that are existing in their fat bodies and being okay with it and showing them off and like, ew, that's disgusting. And when I finally worked through that feeling kind of lost about like, well, now, now what? Like, how do I feel in this body if I'm not going to, listen to what everybody's t- been telling me to feel. Do you uh, read the Militant Baker blog? Just oh, Baker's yes. Blog? Yeah. Yeah. She's incredible. <laughs> yeah. It was one of her blog posts that finally put together for me mm-hmm. so much of the ways that we shame people whom our culture others. Yeah. Um, talking about the ways, if you see like a fat woman who doesn't hate herself, mm-hmm. the reason she draws so much ire the reason people on the internet feel like they're allowed to call her all kinds of terrible names is because, you know, here's all of us trying to follow the rules and have our body conform to the cultural expectations. And there you are loving your body as it is not conforming, not even trying to conform. And if that's okay for you to do, that means that I have spent my whole life wasting my time and energy trying to conform to a cultural ideal that doesn't mean anything. And that would mean that my life doesn't mean anything. And that's terrifying. Yes, it really is. And, and yeah, it was her post actually that started me on my own, my own transition. She had written like nine things. Nobody will tell fat girls about sex. Mm. And one of the points was they know how you're going to look naked before you take your clothes off. And it was this moment of like, holy fuck, you mean all of these years of me wearing the right kinds of clothes and the right colors without certain types of stripes <laughs> weren't actually hiding me? 
And it was this, I was just so confronted with like, people can see my body the way that it is, not the way I've been trying to pretend that it is. And that just took me down a whole new path of just like fear and holy fuck. And then letting go of so much of that. And yeah, it's just been amazing. Yeah. Here you are. Yeah. (laughs) And it turns out that's great. Yeah. And you know, and it's, and it's still every single day. I still have moments when I look at myself and there's something that I, like my brain wants to tell me something isn't okay. And I've had to train myself like that's not a truth. Right. You know, don't believe everything you think. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that you just said is, do I like what's happening And you recently wrote on your blog about a father who asked, what can I tell my sons when it comes to like consent and rape? And your post really boiled down to you get to choose how you want to be touched. You get to choose how you're touched. And um, that to me really ties back to pleasure and joy and, and learning to love this body you're in. And also taking that kind of political stance of like, no, this is my body and I get to decide what happens to it in a world where there's so many rules where um, people feel like they get to do things to our bodies without Mm -hmm. considering whether or not we want to be touched. And I I just, I, I wonder like, what's the response been to that post and have you had any other feelings about it? Because it really did boil down to just people get to choose how they want to be touched. And that's kind of the end of the story. And if we all operated from that place, it could be kind of amazing. I have not had any negative Mm -hmm. response to it. It's hard. It's really hard to argue with. (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) Who's going to say, no, that person doesn't get to choose Um, where it gets complicated. And people have a lot of feelings is when you talk about it in terms of children getting to choose how they are touched. So if grandma comes over and says, can I give you a hug? And the kid says, no. How many grandmas say, okay, I'll ask again later. And how many grandmas say, I'm going to hug you anyway. Right. (laughs) You're sort of teaching children that they don't actually have autonomous decision-making over how and when they get touched. Um, So that's where I think it gets most complicated. Uh, And I was, so this is my definition of sex positivity is just each of us gets to decide how we feel about our bodies and what we do with it. Mm -hmm. For me, that's all sex positivity implies. That's not the definition other people necessarily use. But for me, that's what sex positivity is. And particularly because there's been a really active conversation around decolonizing sex positivity, many of the other more um, like pro-sex, sex sex and like is a a game that we can play and sex can be a mode of self-exploration and self-identification that a lot of those are imposing historically white cultural norms onto the idea of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was having a conversation with uh, a woman of Indian descent whose mother uh, chose to stay in a relationship where she was not happy or satisfied. She capitulated to sex rather than uh, finding pleasure in it. Um, and based in my definition, that's still sex positive because she is choosing it. Is she fully free mm-hmm. to make any decision that she wants to in her culture? No. Nope. She is doing the best she can to make decisions that feel safe for her and her body, given the context that she is in. And I I think that's great. She's yeah. doing the best she can. And 
while I want to create a culture where everyone has equal access to all options in terms of their bodies and their sexuality and their careers and everything, that's not where we are as a planet right now. And I'm not going to say that this woman's mom needs to be making different decisions Uh because that's not the sex positive things to do. Uh, That's totally, she's making the best decisions she can. She gets to choose within the options available to her in her culture. And it's really, I think, the larger scale global responsibility to change the higher level structure of the culture so that more people are more free. I love that so much. And and I, I think you're so right that oftentimes when we're in sex positive communities, there's this like hyper focus on the individual trying to create some type of like global revolution. <laughs> and sometimes for most of us, that's just not an option. We're operating within cultural context, within families and um, upbringings that have certain rules. And we're all just kind of trying to to do our best within the frameworks that we're currently in. And that's not to say that we can't also, as a community, start working about shifting the paradigm and creating better access, better education, better conversations, changing the politics. But I think too often we tell people like, I know you come from, you know, you come from the Middle East and you have these uh, religious beliefs, but it's on you to be totally sexually free in the way that I am. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In the way that I am, because my sex positivity is the right sex positivity. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. That's how white people have been doing it for a long time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and I feel like there tends to be some like big pendulum swings too of of, you know, um right now I've talked about this with other uh educators in the sex positive world of there tends to be this like huge swing like everybody be poly and everybody be kinky and everybody be this and that yeah. and when And that you... if you're not doing those things then you're approved yep. and you're hung up mm-hmm. and you're neurotic and there's something wrong with you if that sexual practice or relationship structure doesn't work for you. Right. Now exactly. yeah <laughs> you do you Yes, exactly. You can try it if you want to. If it works for you, that's great. If it doesn't work for you, that's also great. Yeah, and I just really want to see all of us. I love your definition so much because um, something that, that, yeah, I've talked about a couple of times on the show is like you get to choose to have sex that you don't enjoy. You get to choose to have sex that you feel mediocre about. You get to choose to not have sex, even if you really want to, because of these other reasons. Like you, it, every type, every time you have sex, it doesn't have to be like mind blowing and beautiful. And because you absolutely want it from head to toe, like it can be really complicated. The reasons that you're choosing to engage in this type of touch or this type of situation. And it's okay to have conflicting feelings or to feel confused about it and to still be choosing that for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. This is such good stuff. (laughs) Okay. So, um, I just want to circle back really quickly to come as you are. It's listed on the resource site for the podcast. So everybody, um, I'm going to have links for this episode to Emily's books and blogs so that you can easily like get it if you haven't already downloaded it after my 70 plugs on previous episodes. But, um, (laughs) Emily, I'd love to know what is your favorite part of come as you are? Oh, no one has ever asked me that question before. Yay! (laughs) What is my favorite part of Come As You Are? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, How do I count favorite? (laughs) I I remember the moment when I read... So there's the introduction to the book. 
there's the introductory story of Olivia and her relationship with her genitals. Uh, and then there's the first sentence of chapter one. Um, and I remember I was on draft three of that chapter when I finally figured out what the first sentence was going to be. And I remember where I was and what it felt like to have that sentence click into place, which is about the uh, uh, etymological origins of the word pudendum. <laughs> Medieval anatomists call women's genitals the pudendum from the Latin pudere, meaning to make ashamed. Oh, yes. When I knew that that was the first sentence of the book, I was like, that's my way in because that's so enraging mm -hmm. and so fundamental to the way all of us, if we've grown up in the post-industrial West, have been taught to think about what it means to live inside a woman's body. There's just something inherently shameful and broken about it. And that's, that's my gateway in because it's so clearly bullshit. Yes. So I... I don't I, think, I don't know if I can call that my favorite thing, but I remember writing that sentence and being like, that's so that opens the door. Oh, uh, what a beautiful, vivid memory. <laughs> There's a few of those. I mean, a lot of writing a book is just like sitting down in front of a computer for 10 hours a day and forcing yourself to create sentences. But there's a handful of moments in the same way that in all of my career, there's a handful of moments where a new idea gets handed to me and it just like changes my understanding of the world. And I remember a handful of these moments of like, like I remember the day I learned about the dual control model. I remember the day I learned about responsive desire. I remember the day I learned about arousal non-concordance. There are these like big flashbulb kind of memories mm -hmm. Uh, where I knew I was learning something that changed everything I thought I knew about how sexuality works. And, you know, what's interesting is as I read the book, I had similar moments of like, oh, my God, this explains so much. That's how I felt when I learned it myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, well, I mean, if somebody had told me this five years ago, that would have been really helpful. Yes, exactly. So you just said part of writing is just like sitting down and forcing yourself to create sentences for hours mm -hmm. a day and hoping you kind of get those moments of brilliance and then it comes, starts coming together. And, and I wonder, so I, uh, How Not to Fall, for our listeners who don't know, is this wonderful feminist, consent-informed, <laughs> uh, fun romance novel that you wrote as a direct response to Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. And um, I wonder, writing that, because you were like, I'm going to write a better version. Yeah. Was that writing experience really different? Because you were just kind of like anger pounding it all out? It was a little bit. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of pieces of it. One is that I was pissed. I had to read Fifty Shades of Grey as research for Come As You Are. Mm -hmm. um, and I am a reader of romance novels. I enjoy them. And as a person who does a lot of work around sexual trauma, I require a source of happy endings in my life. Uh, and romance novels is a place where I can get them. Mm -hmm. But I do, as a sex educator and as a feminist, I have certain standards of things I expect from a story. Uh, and I should say that if I hadn't had to read Fifty Shades of Grey because it was a cultural phenomenon, I wouldn't have gotten past the first page. It just wasn't for me. And it really was for some other people. Some people really, really love that book. Uh, but for me, so it's about a college senior 
who gets the experiences her sexual awakening at the hands of an older, more powerful man. Um, and I have been a college administrator. So if Anastasia Steele had come to my office to talk about her relationship, which is the kind of thing that happens all the time, um, I would be mandated under federal law to report that conversation to campus police because she'd be telling me about her stalker. Mm-hmm. And that was not okay for me that this unambiguously abusive relationship was being presented to the world as a romance. Yikes. So I was mad. I I got mad. Um, (laughs) And I had also, over the course of writing Come As You Are, had to learn how to tell stories effectively because it's one of the most powerful rhetorical strategies. So I had to learn how. So I was like, you know what? I know how to tell stories now. I can do this better. I can tell a story of a college senior's sexual awakening at the hands of an older, more powerful man in a way that is feminist and sex positive and medically accurate. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I finished Come As You Are in April. And as soon as I was done, it was like methadone. Writing How Not to Fall was like tapering down off of Come As You Are. (laughs) So I wrote it in three months, this 84,000 word story. Um, uh, just as a sort of like purge, mm-hmm. like, bah! and then I <laughs> sent it to my agent sort of as a joke, like, you know, how I said I was going to write a romance novel. Here it is. And she read the first chapter and was like, I can sell this. And so she did in a two book deal. Uh, so here I am as a romance novelist. So yeah, it absolutely felt like a purge. But also, I would add that after it sold, I had to write uh, a second one because it sold in a two book deal. So I got to write another one. Um So I would come home from work and I would, oops, I just hit a thing. So I would come home from work and start working on the second novel. And I had one day in particular at work uh, when four different students told me that they had been sexually assaulted and I was the first person they had told. And even for me, four in one day is a lot. Mm. Uh, So my usual course of action would be to like sit in the bathtub with a big glass of box wine uh, but instead, I sat down in front of my computer and I worked on the novel and I had this like dark, difficult day. And I know that every single one of those four women will find their way to a happy ending of their own mm-hmm. because it happens. People heal from these experiences and grow. And I will never get to see that. And it was agony on that day to have so much pain presented to me. So I sat down and I wrote the proposal scene. I wrote the last scene of the book. Mm. Um And I felt like all of that vicarious suffering inside me just like purge and melt from my body. And that did not happen when I was writing Come As You Are. I did a lot of thinking about sexual violence because I have to talk. You can't talk about women's sexuality without talking about survivorship. Um, So I have there's like these very big, deep, dark days or weeks at a time um, where I was thinking about it a lot. And it didn't have that sort of purgy, cleansy kind of feeling. So it was on that day when I was writing the proposal scene that I was like, this is good for me in a way that writing nonfiction isn't. Hmm. And I decide I'm going to keep if I never sell another romance novel ever again, I'm going to keep writing fiction because it is a place for me to put this stuff and turn it into something that I choose, something joyful, something pleasurable, something where I can create a happy ending. I love that so much. And, and yeah, just having that, that outlet for you sounds 
Beautiful. And I have to say, I'm so ready for December to be here so that How Not to Let Go can be in my hands. <laughs> Happy ending. I promise. Yes. The first one, it ends with a cliffhanger. It does. Like, people should know that before they open the book. Mm-hmm. It ends. It's, I know it's a romance novel. You're expecting a happy ending, but you get it at the end of the second book. Yes. Hopefully it is worth getting through all like 160,000 words that the pair of books is. Um, I tried to make the happy ending large enough scale to be really worth having gone through all that. Well, for people who enjoy romance novels, I have to say how not to fall is one of the best that I've ever read. Yay. Uh, I loved how emotionally intelligent it was. I loved how self-aware um, both of the characters are. I loved the sex was so hot. Oh my God. The <laughs> sex was so hot. The teasing and the drawing it out and just the like, Oh my God, it was delicious. The service top. All romance heroes should be service top. Hell yes. And, <laughs> um, I, one of the things that brought me so much delight was how fucking totally nerdy this book is. Really very, Really yes. nerdy. Yep. I mean, like, it's so great. Just, like, the depth that you go into with, like, talking about research and brain science and and psychology and even, like, climbing and dancing. I mean, like, there's just these, like, really wonderful, delightful details and the way these characters speak to each other is just, like, you can hear the scientists just geeking <laughs> out together and and he even, you know, like incorporates anatomy lessons into their sex and like, oh my gosh, yeah. every single one of those things just made me so just feel so much, so much enjoyment. Yay. Yeah. To be clear, like, okay, so the hero is a psychiatrist, right? Mm-hmm. He's an MD, PhD psychiatrist who does research on uh, trauma and the brain. Mm-hmm. So the nerd part is built into his character. Yeah. And the heroine is about to go to medical school and does research in the same laboratory. Mm-hmm. So it's not like random that they're nerds. I made them those things on purpose. Yes. Yeah. And I just, I felt, and and I could be totally wrong, but I just felt like so much of you was in the book. The things that you know about, the things you're excited about, the way you talk about research, and and I felt that kind of coming through in their characters, and I, I loved that. It just felt really authentic, the way that they talked to each other, the knowledge that they had. You know, it didn't feel like um, me trying to go write about being an astronaut, <laughs> right. which, yeah. which would be I, terrible. And again, I did that because I was, like, writing what I know. Mm-hmm. Like, the reason he studies trauma is because I get that. His father's an alcoholic. My father's an alcoholic. So it's easy for me to write a neurotic character whose father's an alcoholic. I know what that's like. I can write that really easily. And I also know the brain science of why it happens. So I'm going to write that, which is why I could write it in three months. The second one was uh, took longer. It took about eight months to write. And the one I'm working on now, I'm on the third draft And it is not as much like me and the things I'm already good at. The heroine is a professor of comparative literature Mm. and the hero is an actor, which are things I know a little bit about, but I've had to do a lot more effort to get to like their headspace. Ah, so is this new fiction that you're writing one that you're going to pitch to your publisher? Yes. Um, Actually, it's been, well, oh. I mean, how much do you want to talk about the (laughs) plot of the next novel? It's another duology, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And the one-sentence summary is an actor 
during his Oscar acceptance speech, blurts out the name of his long-lost love, the paparazzi find her, and that's how he finds out where he went, where she went, and how he can get her back. Ooh. Oh my gosh. All the romance novel lovers out there, I can feel them right. just like twittering. <laughs> and I, I, I currently have two options for where it is she went, like what happened. And obviously it has to be something very large scale mm-hmm. to keep them apart for years. Like something really big has to happen. Um, and I have a, a couple of choices. I wrote it with one big thing and I'm not feeling very confident about it. I think I want to make it something completely different. Should I should I tell you? Do you care? You can if you wanna give a tease, we'll take it. Okay. Option one. Um, and so this is this is the dark one that I've already written. Um, and it was absolutely just a place for me to purge a bunch of stuff. Um, they were gonna meet under the London Eye at New Year's. And I uh, know someone who had one of the experiences in Europe where they were under a major European capital destination and they were attacked and raped uh, by a stranger on New Year's Eve. Oh. That was a terrorist attack, right? Wow. Um, so that's what I have happened to my heroine. Um, so no wonder she disappears. Yeah. So she's gone by the time he gets there and he never hears from her again and has to move on. So that's what I wrote. Um, and it's absolutely a giant scale thing that's going to keep them apart for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very dark and not the kind of thing you expect when you hear Oscar winning actor hero mm-hmm. goes to find his lost love. Like that doesn't necessarily say to you deep, dark trauma. Right. So my alternative is that she is bitten by a werewolf <laughs> and turns into a werewolf. <gasps> Please do that. Okay. <laughs> See? Isn't that so much more fun? Oh my god, like I totally love the option of working through trauma because I feel like you <laughs> of everyone on the planet could make that such um an anchor for survivors to feel like I like romance novels and this heroine went through trauma and here's how she and I feel like less alone. Here's how she survived and right. also I got to I got to uh give the hero the news. And talk about his response to receiving that. Yeah. Especially because he knows where he was when it was happening and he was delayed and late. And like, he's like, what could I have done to prevent it? And like all the rage that he has, he wants to go attack the people. Yeah. Um, And yeah. So like I go real deep with it and it it gave me a chance to do a lot of uh, neat, important stuff. And I just don't think it's a story that people are going to be super excited to read and then tell all their friends to read. Well, I will just say, listeners, if you have a vote, then yes. tweet it at us. If you want the the option one, please let us know. Or if you want Terrorist option two, right? Or, ra- or, or werewolf. Werewolf, right. Because I don't know. As soon as you said werewolf, I was like, well, now that sounds fun. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I know it's bananas, but it's a romance novel and an Oscar-winning actor. Come on. Come on. Why wouldn't there also be werewolves? How couldn't there be? Like, Seriously. It just feels like... And the heroine, I already wrote in an affinity for dogs. Oh, perfect. Right? Yes. And the hero is half Georgian, so Georgia the nation. Mm-hmm. And the region Georgia is called Georgia in English is because the etymological root means land of the wolves. See? I mean... It was just sitting there waiting for me right. to realize that it was about werewolves all along. <laughs> oh my God, that, that makes me so happy. 
Well, we'll see if the listeners have any votes, okay. and I can't wait okay. to see where you land. Um, okay, so I would love to circle um, quickly down to some questions I have about research because yeah. I know so much of the work. Well, your entire blog, you know, is about better sex based on science, right. and um, one of the things that I I really admire about the work you do is you make science very consumable and palatable for non-academics in a way that makes it clear, like, this is why this might be relevant, or this is how this might impact your life or give you some more permission. Um, and you also like break down bad science and people yeah. who use science poorly, which is terrific. And uh, one of the things that you also talk about a lot, both I thought and come as you are, and when you're teaching is how limited uh, science is when it comes to diversity in that, you know, so much of the research that's being done right now is specifically on cis heterosexual bodies. Um, white bodies also. White, yes. yeah, exactly white and um, often very young. And, yep. um, and yeah. so I'd love to know just kind of from your perspective as a scientist and a researcher, uh, what do you think it's going to take for, for science to become more inclusive so that the results are more meaningful to a larger uh, body yeah. of us? I think it's already happening. Um, what made Come As You Are possible is the fact that for the last 30 and especially the last 15 years, more and more women are becoming sex researchers. So they read the research and they see the way that traditionally male sex researchers have written about women's sexuality and have been like, I think you are missing something. Mm -hmm. Because the assumption is always, we sort of like, we know what goes on for dudes. So what goes on for dudes must be what's supposed to go on for the lady girl types. Mm -hmm. And so the extent to which a lady girl type is different from a dudely bro type is the extent to which that lady girl type is broken, yeah. right? And so they, the women sex researchers have come in and been like, I'm pretty sure that's not a safe assumption to make. Um, and this has been happening since the 70s for sure, but is really accelerated in the last 15 years. And without those researchers' work, come as you are, wouldn't have existed. So one of the things is we need greater representation or greater diversity among the researchers themselves. I would say that sex research is doing a pretty okay job of getting women into the fold, but only white women. We have done a terrible job of making that space accessible to people of color. Of course, there are there's like an extra layer of stereotype and stigma around sexuality for people of color. It was a challenge I faced when I was writing Come As You Are because I have these uh, stories that you follow, these four women whose stories you follow through the book. And it was really essential to me that it not be for white women. Mm -hmm. But it was also really essential to me that I help avoid and counter the stereotypes and shaming stigmas that get applied to people of different races and ethnicities just on the basis of that, right? So um, uh, for African-American women, there's this sort of like mammy stereotype yeah. or else uh, the Jezebel yep. stereotype. And it was really important for me that if I was going to write an African-American woman, that she not conform with either of those things. 
Um, so it makes sense to me, like the further I got into like the complexities and pressures around sexuality for people of color, the more I was like, well, it makes perfect sense to me that a person would, even if they're really interested in the science, they're just not going to choose sex research because if they stand up in front of a group of people, especially because that room's going to be 90 plus percent white people, mm-hmm. they in their body of color are going to be received differently. And I already know what it's like to stand up in front of a group of people in a woman's body and be judged in a particular way because I'm talking about sex. And I can only imagine the ways that that would escalate tenfold if you are not a white woman. Um, So we, that's going to get better, but it's going to be slow. Um, We've done a pretty good job of attracting people who are non-heterosexual and I think we're going to do an even better job. One of the pieces of this is that the technology is improving, making it easy for us to get meaningful sample sizes of people outside the hierarchy, hierarchy, mm-hmm. the you know, like cisgender, white, heterosexual, <laughs> twenty or thirty something, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, the better the technology gets, the more we can find ways to be inclusive of communities that would not otherwise participate in sex research um, and communities where we would usually just get such a small number of people participating that we can't necessarily draw a meaningful conclusion. Uh, one of the most exciting advances for me is when you read about ambulatory kits. So when the researchers can ship you a piece of technology so that you can participate in the survey from home. So you strap yourself into the device that's going to measure blood flow to your genitals and the heart rate monitor and everything. And you give you, they give you a computer and you watch all the videos and you respond to the questionnaires and then you ship back the hardware. Oh, that's awesome. So you don't have to live in Toronto or New York or Amsterdam or in a place where they're doing the research in order to be a participant and have your information count. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about that. So even more than the internet, I think the development of really effective ambulatory hardware is going to help us to be way more inclusive. Oh, I'm so happy to hear about that development. And I hope that it gets used widely and creatively to, to get better, yeah, better sample sizes and better representation in the research mm-hmm. and... And so, people might be who wouldn't otherwise participate, who wouldn't go into the lab. Exactly. Might be more willing to participate if they can do it from their house. Yes. Yeah. And I think you're, you're so right that so much research happens in a very local, like local to the university that's conducting the research. Exactly. And, you know, all of the people who live in rural towns or the suburbs or who can't take time off work to go to the middle, in the middle of the day to a university right. for this study, like this just greatly increases access. It even reduces the sort of ethical question of paying people to participate in research, because then if you're a person who's living below the poverty line and we're paying you $500 to participate in sex research, that $500 is could change your life right. for a month at least, right? Yeah. Like that's really important. So is it really fair to offer a person, like, how free are they to choose to say yes or no to participate in that research? Mm-hmm. So I think it, it uh, helps with the ethical questions involved mm-hmm. in doing human subjects research on sexuality also. Yeah. So speaking of research, I'd love to know just kind of personally for the work that you're doing, 
What is something that you just really, really wish we had more research around? Like a place where we don't have enough data and you just feel like, oh, God, I wish we had some really good data about this thing. Um, oh, yeah. It doesn't exist. Uh, like what was what would you say? The In chapter three, I talk about the brain mechanism that uh, governs all motivation, really. It's the wanting, liking, learning. I call them expecting, enjoying, and uh, what was the third one? Expecting... Uh, enjoying and uh, uh, eagerness. Yes. Is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, almost all that research is done exclusively in rats. Uh, and one of the main reasons why it's not done in humans is the technology necessary to measure these fine grained distinctions in human functional brain studies is not fine enough. Like it's, we're not, we don't have hardware to effectively measure these distinctions and really see the dynamics of how these three different systems are interacting with each other, as a result of which we still have people writing about, uh, you know, the pleasure centers of the brain as if it's all about reward and not about a distinction between what you like, what you want, and what you expect. Mm. We must know more about that. Um, The reason my uh, arousal non-concordance work and writing is different from what you've seen other places is because I've read Kent Berridge's and Morton Kringlebach's and those folks rat research on the wanting liking distinction. And if you can't, if you don't know that distinction, then you're going to be really confused when you read about arousal non-concordance. Um, but it's only when we have studied it in humans, especially with functional brain imaging, that we're really going to have a strong empirical foundation for all the things that I really think we're going to find are true about arousal non-concordance. Oh, well, I hope that that happens in the next couple of years. That was a really nerdy answer. Sorry. No, it's great. And for people who read the book, you'll completely understand what, what Emily is talking about, but, um, and we need better brain imaging magnets. That's the problem is our magnets aren't good enough. And that's the part of your Ted talk where you're playing out little rats, right? Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're, the the, uh, uh, ooh, the ooh, rat spa. What's that? <laughs> yeah, the rat spa and the Iggy Pop rat uh-huh. study. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's about the sensation being context dependent. Mm. Um, the there's other studies that are specifically about distinguishing between wanting and liking. So if you give a rat salt water, like the salinity of the ocean, the rat goes bleh, bleh, right because it tastes terrible. Yeah. And they know that. And you can teach them, hey, when this little light turns on, we're going to give you salt water. And they go, oh, don't give me the salt water, right? But then if you give them a drug that depletes their uh, sodium levels, which is sodium, you have a drive for Mm -hmm. sodium. You have to keep the right levels, the electrolytes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, If you deplete their sodium levels, they hate the taste of this salt water, but they will go over and chew on that little light and try to, like, make the light come on so that they can get the salt, they don't like it, but they want it. Interesting. Right? So that's some of the behavioral rat research that's been done to help illustrate the difference between wanting and liking. People who experience addiction mm-hmm. go through this sort of process with greater incentive salience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that when uh, you're presented with something that activates memories of the thing you're addicted to, your brain goes like, Pump! it doesn't have a pleasure light up. It has a wanting light up, which is a very different thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's just like so many awesome things that we still need right. to learn about and there's like so expand much on. To... Yeah. Ugh. 
Okay, well, we're almost at the end of our hour, and what I'd really love to end with is you recently made an announcement that you are going to be spending the next year writing a science-based guide for women who feel exhausted and overwhelmed, but also like they're somehow not doing enough. Right. And you mentioned that the title of the book is Burnout. Is that That's right? the working title, the working yes. title. Uh, so I know to your previous book, Come As You Are, was all about uh, desire and libido and sexual pleasure. And you're shifting now to talking about really women's overall well-being based on the science, which of course has a big impact on sexual pleasure and sexual experiences. Yep. Uh, so I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, what brought this about and kind of what you're digging into with this book. Uh, so yeah, I, it's not necessarily the obvious next step after you've written a sex book, usually, especially a book about women's sexuality. The next step obviously is to write a book about men's sexuality, or maybe write a book about relationships. But what really became clear to me, um, from writing come as you are, and then especially traveling around the country, talking to people about come as you are is the section I wrote. So chapter four is about a combination of stress and love. And so many people told me that the most impactful part of the book was the section about the stress response, about fight, flight, and freeze, about having to escape the lion. And just because the stressor is gone doesn't mean that the physiological stress is gone and learning how to complete the cycle of stress response. Mm -hmm. So many people were like, learning how to manage my own overall well-being was the most important factor in bringing my sexual well-being up to where I wanted it to be. Yep. Um, and so be it became obvious to me that the next step had to be a book about women's overall well-being, which is the foundation of sexual well-being. Um, I'm actually writing it with my twin sister, who is a, a choral conductor. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But is that fun? It's Yeah, it's really great. We have very similar sorts of working styles. So we'll write a bunch of stuff and then send it to the other person who then changes everything. <laughs> but it's really, really good. Um, so my master's degree is in counseling psychology and her master's degree is in choral conducting. And there was a moment a few years ago when I looked at that and I was like, huh, we both got master's degrees in how to listen to people and to have feelings. Mm. And ever since then, we've been seeing more and more places of overlap between her as a choral conductor and me as a sex educator. They're really remarkably similar because they're both about bringing your full authentic personhood to the moment and having that be an inspiration for other people to find their authentic personhood and be present in the moment. So we're writing a book that's basically looking at the science and the practices people engage in in order to drag themselves out from under the exhaustion mm -hmm. and sense of overwhelm. We, we just started. I mean, we're not, the book is sold. We're like, we're writing the book, but we don't know where it's going to end ultimately, mm -hmm. but it's looking very much like we're going to talk a lot about, uh, shifting the way we frame the goals of our lives. Do you remember in the desire chapter, I talk about the little monitor. Yep. A little monitor who knows what your goal is and how much effort you're investing and mm -hmm. um and it keeps a, a ratio of effort to progress yeah that little monitor applies to sexual desire of course it applies to orgasm but it applies to every domain of our life and it's actually immediately linked to the phenomenon of learned helplessness versus optimism 
Interesting. So what we're going to talk a lot about is how to use our understanding of that mechanism, the monitor mechanism, to make sure you always feel successful and like you're making progress and learning what you can let go of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also using science to figure out what counts as enough. When can you look at your life and be like, I did it. I've done all the things and I can feel satisfied and good. Yes. How can we create more moments in our life where we're like, it's not just, yes, I have plenty more to do, and you're allowed to celebrate. One of the key moments for me uh, in deciding to go in this direction with a book was when uh, the Supreme Court uh, heard the case around same-sex marriage mm-hmm. on the day that the ruling came down and same-sex marriage became the rule of the land. Most of my Facebook was like rainbows and yay, this is fantastic. This is amazing. There were a couple of people who were like, marriage is between a man and a woman. And I just like ignore those people. And then there were the people who were like, just because we've got same sex marriage doesn't mean we're done people. Like we're not like, there's still so much inequality and here are all the ways we're not equal, blah, blah, blah. And like, there isn't anybody who thinks we're done. There isn't anybody who heard, yay, same-sex marriage, and now we're all equal. And everybody has, like, nobody thought that. And yet these other people really felt like they didn't have permission to celebrate Mm -hmm. this multi-decade fight that the community and the entire nation had been participating in just because it wasn't the end. Like, you're allowed to celebrate winning a big battle. That's a win. That's a joy and a delight. And so what's going on when people feel like they don't have permission to celebrate something that's an incomplete win, given that there is no such thing as a complete win? Yes. So clearly I have feelings about it. Oh, well, and I just, I'm really excited to see where you go with this. I know uh, part of what I do is sex and relationship coaching, primarily with uh, cis women, sometimes with couples. But one of the things that comes up for me over and over again and, and with clients is I see, for instance, someone say, I thought I'd be more successful than I am. I thought I'd be making more money than I am. And I'm almost 40. And what does my life mean? And I can't stop thinking about how unsuccessful I am compared to what I thought I would be. And then having these conversations about like, let's talk about success versus fulfillment and what's fulfilling for you and how can you find like small moments of joy. And so often they just can't and they just feel like they need to do more, even though they're already working, you know, 11 hour days and they can't let go. And then they wonder why they can't connect with their partner and they never want sex and they feel terrible until they're like halfway through the sex and and I, I, this, this is just chronic and I'm really excited to see kind of what the science says and, and, and where you go with this, because I know that it's something so many of us are, are in need of hearing. And that is it, dear listeners. I just want to take a quick moment to thank Emily for coming on the show and just being so fun and gracious and sharing all of her amazing consent-based romance novels and her information about science and research and what's next for her book all about burnout and how our overall health impacts our sexual health. 
If you want to stay in touch with Emily, you can follow her amazing blog, The Dirty Normal. Uh, and you can also find her on Twitter at Emily Nagoski. Of course, all those links will be at sexgetsreal.com. You can also get links to uh, her book, Come As You Are, which is all about libido and desire, and also a link to her romance novel, How Not to Fall. So uh, head to sexgetsreal.com, check those links out. Also, that's where you can send me notes and messages and stories and questions. And you know I love hearing from you. Next week's episode is me and Dylan together again. So stay tuned. Until then, this is Dawn Sarah with Sex Gets Real. Bye.